You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the founder of Common Good, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization which advocates simplifying government, as well as a lawyer, renowned columnist, and author. In 2017, he was a member of President Trump's Strategic and Policy Forum, where his reports played a key role in influencing the Trump administration's infrastructure proposals, including speeding up approval times. His latest book is titled Not Accountable. Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Philip Howard. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. So firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Uh, well, I'm a, uh, I grew up in the South, and I suppose my, as relevant, my most relevant uh, background experience is that I did economics research at the Oak Ridge National Lab for three summers when I was in college under in a little group run by a Nobel laureate Eugene Wigner. And that was really the formative say, experience in my intellectual life. And um, and I did more more research after college, but uh, decided to become a lawyer and, and then at some point began wondering why government worked so badly. I was a civic leader in New York and um, and went sort of went back to school. I hired an intellectual historian to um, and started reading Hayek and rereading Hayek, you know, the Constitution of Liberty. My, my work's completely tattered. Um, and uh, and that resulted in me writing about how sort of modern government had become a form of central planning. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up reading Hayek as well. And, and so, you know, can can very closely relate to your experience of, you know, sort of looking at, at some of the classical uh, libertarian thinkers, and then looking at our, our modern form of government and feeling a little bit disenfranchised. Um, so your your latest book concerns public sector unions, which are often say, notorious for creating an, an, that, that inefficient and, and unaccountable bureaucracy. So even even as private sector unions have, have sort of withered in the U.S. over the last few decades, public sector unions have grown dramatically. So the, the, the BLS reports that in 2009, for the first time ever, there were more public sector employees than private sector uh, employees in unions. So can you give us a bit of an overview of the how and why of public employee unions and why, why they've grown so rapidly? <laughs> Sure. Well, the origin story of, of private unions was there was a need. You know, 120 years ago, factories were mangling workers and there were safety issues and lots of issues that, 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 that unions helped out on. There was no uh, need for the public unions. They, they were, The collective bargaining was authorized them almost as a footnote of the rights revolution at the end of the 1960s. It was just a power grab by the people who ran the public unions that they wanted to have power to collectively bargain against government and the and the um, experts that get, that that gave them that power and the and the legislature didn't think through why people like FDR had opposed um, public unions and the reason they've grown is because they have enormous power unlike private unions they have power over government. You know, the government has to negotiate with them. It's completely different. We can go through this. Completely different 
market dynamic and 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 negotiating dynamic. So, um, so they've become, um, you know, became a way to get uh, abusive pensions and <laughs> became a way to get lots of benefits. And they've become probably the most powerful interest group in in the country. And uh, they have lots of money. And you know, they 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 haven't continued to they grew um they got a lot of members in the first decade after collective bargaining and it's pretty been pretty pretty much static since then so in the book you present sort of a five-point indictment of public unions which i wanted to go through one by one starting with no accountability so i think this has been a, a big complaint with uh people have had for with for example police unions where the unions which are designed to protect their members can end up shielding bad cops from legal consequences so yeah, can you can you elaborate a, a bit for us about this well, sure. indictment? Uh, uh sure well first of all the, the democracy is just a process of accountability that's what it is you elect people and if they do a bad job or you elect someone else or you elect a different party and it's quite clear, and Madison talked about this: that that the that an executive, elected executive's authority requires him to to for everyone below him to the from the, uh, Madison put it the lowest level of the middle grade and the highest must report uh, to to the president. And, and uh, what's happening with with modern public employee unions is they've literally eviscerated accountability. The rate of accountability, and there are lots of studies of this, is between 0.01% and 0.02%. So in Illinois, there was, over an 18-year period, there was an average of two teachers out of 95,000 who were terminated for poor performance. Uh, you know, as one principal put it, it's not a <laughs> – firing a teacher is not a, a process. It's a career. So so there's, there's, there's basically zero accountability. Oh, let me just say one other thing. The, the, the accountability is important not to get rid of legions of bad employees. I assume most people who go into government want to do it for the right reasons and want to do a good job. But accountability is the um, um, is the kind of foundation of mutual trust. So everyone within in an organization will work hard and go the extra mile and feel pride and dignity when they know that other people are doing it as well. Conversely, if you know that that performance doesn't matter and the person next door is sloughing off and sleeps during class or whatever, then it's like letting the air out of the balloon. So it's very hard to maintain a culture of dignity and energy um, when everyone knows there's no accountability. Yeah, and um, so so why why it then in private unions does do we not see the same the same mechanism where you know uh, a handful of bad apples that might ruin the bunch uh, don't end up getting protected? Uh, well, the, the private unions don't do it that way. So let's talk about the dynamic of negotiations in in a private union context. Both both sides have an interest in the viability of the enterprise. If you make it so that you can't manage the business and it doesn't work well and it's inefficient, then it's going to go out of business or it's going to move out of town and everyone's going to lose their jobs. So there's a kind of reality check with private unions, which the private unions learned painfully in the 60s and 70s when they drove, you know, the car making overseas, for example. Um, so 
in, in the public sector, there's 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 no such risk. The, the government can't move out of town; it's stuck there. You know, the the taxpayers have to pay whatever the bill is, no matter how inefficient the government is. Yeah, and then that sort of brings us to the second indictment, which concerns unmanageable government, which I think is is all too familiar a concern for many people. I mean, American bureaucracy is notoriously slow and yeah. inefficient, and and I'm sure our listeners would be curious to know what role you would argue public unions play in that unmanageability. A typical a collective bargaining agreement is about 200 pages long. If it were just about salaries and pensions, it might be 10 pages long. Um, so these are very detailed restrictions that 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 rigidly categorize jobs. So that, for example, if a work crew is repairing, repairing a rail line, you know, in, in the transit system, they're not authorized to cut an overhanging limb. <laughs> you have to bring in a separate crew. And so there's studies that show that, for example, the trash collection in big cities costs twice what private carters charge. Yeah, so it's incredibly inefficient. These these contracts are designed for inefficiency. You cannot help out if there's something unanticipated. uh, You can uh, the manager can't deploy resources. If there's a pandemic, there's nothing in the contract about teaching during a pandemic. Nor is there anything in the contract about um, remote teaching. So that all has to be separately negotiated. And then it gives up, you know, school systems end up getting three hours a day out of their teachers <laughs> under this new negotiation. In the federal government, you move your office, there has to be a, a negotiation over who gets to sit at what desk. It's just, it's painful. It's, you know, there t- as you know, there are probably 10 million books written about management. You know, the airport bookstores are filled with them. I've yet to find one book about what happens when no one has authority to manage. It's like disconnecting the spokes from the hub of the wheel. You can't roll forward. You know, the spokes clang around and then until there's a negotiation. It's just, it's, it, it's, it's a tragedy. It's, it's a managerial tragedy. I mean, it just burns money and causes failure. Yeah, and then I think that that's sort of a perfect segue into the third the third point that you talk about, which sort of leads directly from that is unaffordable benefits, which obviously come at the expense of the taxpayer again. So un- unlike a private company, the government has no market forces or bottom line to keep it in check, can't go out of business like a poorly run company can. So it's not unsurprising the benefit spending can go out of control. I mean, there's no there's no supply and demand. There's no you know productivity of the workers in relationship to how much money they get paid. Uh, you know the output that they generate, all these market forces limit, you know, the, the negotiating power of unions, because if they push it too far, then the company will just go out of business or it doesn't make right. sense for them to hire those workers. That those market forces, you know, it's obvious, I think, how unionization can make spending right. on benefits go through the roof. Yes. And, and shareholders um, and analysts look at the long term viability of a private company. Politicians don't think that way. They can readily give a union huge benefits that don't come due until after that politician is out of office. <laughs> so so guess what? They 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 agreed to all these these provisions like spiking of overtime in the last year, which can have the effect of doubling the pension of somebody. Uh, they they continue to have 
defined benefit plans when the private market long ago went to define contribution plans. You know, when that re results in horrible underfunding because the, these the, these governments have you know ridiculous assumptions about what the market you know what the market rate of return is and such. And so it's it, there are a number of states that are functionally insolvent. Um, Illinois being one, um, uh, Kentucky being another. So you know, yes, it's, it's made it so that government has has become unaffordable because of these largely opaque and hidden benefit packages that politicians gave to the gave to the unions in exchange for political support. And you can see sort of how the incentives here are broken just because of how, you know, the the fact that politicians are publicly elected, right? So, um, you know, unlike, say, a CEO of a company, a politician has to get more votes and they have to get the political support of these unions. And at the same time, the unions have a vested interest in what the pol politician can provide them with. Um, and, you know, the politician is looking to win re-election. They're not looking to, say, you know, increase the bottom line of the government. And so, you know, all the incentive structures here are just th – there's nothing regulating you know right why, why it, it, there's there's nothing incentivizing anyone to act in the best interest of the public right so this is the biggest difference between private trade union bargaining and public union bargaining is that it would be unlawful in a trade union context for management to collude with some compliant workers to come up with some sweetheart you know uh, bargaining agreement that would be unlawful under the NLRA um, in in the public sector, that's the way the game is played. The public unions have amassed this incredible political power, you know, $5 billion a year in dues, give or take, almost all used for political purposes. And and they they literally will staff the, 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 the headquarters of someone running for governor or mayor. They'll staff them. They'll, they'll pay people 50 bucks and put them on buses to go hand out leaflets you know, in in the neighborhoods, they are the campaign staff, and they, they you know they man callbacks. And then guess what? When the mayor or the governor gets elected, they don't sit on the other side of the bargaining table. They sit on the same side of the bargaining table. It's not a negotiation; it's a payoff. And you could imagine the outrage if management and workers colluded, uh, you know, on the same side of the bargaining table to screw shareholders out of their money. Uh, you know, that would be not just illegal, that would be a huge corporate scandal. And, and that, yet we, we see the same thing happening on a, a larger and larger scale in the public sector. Yes. And, 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 and um, the word scale is important here. Uh, what's happened is that the public unions are about 7 million members of public unions, four and a half million of the teachers union. They they basically harnessed the huge size of government, you know, and how many government employees there are, into this really dominating political force dedicated to blocking any reform of government. They become uh, a kind of permanent spoil system. You know, civil service was supposed to be the merit system, so we have no accountability. It's the anti-merit system, and, and and we have this dominant force whose main job is to uh, whose main goal is to preserve the perquisites and benefits and control for themselves against the public good. 
there's no argument in looking at these contracts that these are good for the public. They're not even good for attracting workers to government because it's repulsive. It's re, you know, it, I mean, it repels good good graduates to go into one of one of these terrible schools or one of these agencies where people are just going through the motions. Who wants to spend your life doing that? So it's it's just this deviant subculture that's developed inside the operating machinery of government that that I think should be, and I'm trying to make it into seen as the scandal that it is. Yeah, and so that that sort of leads us to this fourth point, which is pu- public policy against the public interest. So until this point, we're so- sort of talking about how taxpayers get screwed out of you know their money. But I, I think another interesting. Uh, uh, argument uh, along those same lines is how that can also distort public policy. So this, again, sounds like sort of the result of of mismatched incentives, where the ones making and implementing the policy for the public have an inherent conflict of interest. So so what role do you reckon unions play in that poor policymaking process? (laughs) Well, there, you know, you have sort of government by the unions and for the unions. So, for example, um, there was a law passed a while back in California called Three Strikes and You're Out. So somebody who stole a banana and then stole a golf club and then stole a pack of cards or something would get up to a life sentence because he had three crimes. <laughs> that was the, you know, and, and criminal justice advocates just thought this was the worst thing in the world. Well, who was promoting that? The Correctional Officers Union, because it meant there'd be more people in jail and more jobs for them. That's an example. Another example, the public schools have regs that they got the Biden administration to put in that basically say if, if 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 you want any money from the federal government as a charter school, you have to get approval from the local charter school before you can open it. Well, it, and, and, the, and the new charter school has to uh, serve a diverse population. Well, they don't serve a diverse population. They serve a population exclusively of minorities because that's where it's needed. And they're never going to get the approval of a local school because it's run by the teachers union. So, so they put in these policies basically designed to block new charter schools. Yeah, and that th- those examples I think are really, uh, I mean, especially shocking because it's 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 straight up corruption at that point when um, you know public policy is is done. You know, it's like correctional officers are the ones negotiating for policy, deciding how many prisoners there should be. You know, it's it's any any other field <laughs> we would we would consider that a blatant conflict of interest. Right, 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 that's right. Well, it is conflict, but you know, I mean, people say, well, other other interest groups give money to politicians and stuff, and but there there are three difference with three differences with other interest groups. First of all, other interest groups. Uh, don't have the power of collective bargaining. Government doesn't have to, by law, sit down and make a deal with them. So that's an enormous difference. Before collective bargaining, there was a big um, teachers union, the National Education Association, and it was like any other trade group. It was like the American Medical Association. They would have ideas. They would talk to politicians. That's fine. You know, their teachers have an interest, but they didn't have power over government. It's it's the it's the seeding of sovereignty that, that's so so iniquitous here. The second difference is that um, 
is the public employees have a fiduciary duty to serve the public. They swear an oath of loyalty to the Constitution. So that's not true with private workers. And they're negotiating agreements that are designed to harm the public. It's, it's anyway, it's an outrage. Okay, and that sort of brings us to this this final fifth and last point that you make, which surrounds the lack of reformability. And this this is one that I think is perhaps the most dangerous downside of public sector unions, because it, it enables employees to stand in as sort of a collective bulwark against necessary progress by consolidating their power for anything that's against their interest, but in the interest of the public. So can you explain or, or elaborate the strangle yeah. that you argue that public unions place? Yes, the, the, the power of, of public unions is really, um, um, first of all, they exercise it in a brutal way. So we're talking about $5 billion a year that's actually organized through national um, headquarters so that if there's a state legislator that has a little reform that might um, somehow impinge on what the union views of this prerogatives. In one case, uh, in New Jersey, uh, a, a prominent state legislator wanted to return the power of pension decisions to the local school boards. The the state um, consolidated money and had him run out of office. <laughs> it was John Kasich um, uh, got a bunch of reforms designed to make it easier to manage government and reduce the controls, and he got them through the legislature in, in Ohio when he was governor. And the national unions came together with tens of millions of dollars uh, in a referendum initiative and had all those reforms undone. I mean, they are, you know, they're brutal. <laughs> they're brutal. I mean, you should watch tapes of them. I mean, they're, it's like dealing with, you know, it's like dealing with the mob or something. I mean, they're, and oh, it's in Illinois, this is, you can't believe this, Illinois passed a referendum for a constitutional amendment this past November, which provides that the provisions of collective bargaining agreements as a matter of the Illinois Constitution will preempt any contrary provision in a past or future statute. <laughs> so think about that. Voters elect legislators. It doesn't matter what the legislators decide to do. Because the collective bargaining agreement will trump it as a matter of Illinois constitutional law. It's just inconceivable to me that that would pass muster under the U.S. Constitution. So, I mean, then after after we've sort of gone through those those five indictments, uh, that, that sort of brings us to the, the section three of the book, which is uh, the unconstitutionality. And so you make a, a number of points in this section um, about why, you know, you, you argue that the, the Constitution can be interpreted um, so that unions or public sector unions uh, are, you know, not within its constraints. And so uh, can you can you give us sort of your your Supreme Court style oral argument pitch for why they should be ruled unconstitutional? Uh, uh, sure. Uh, four points. I'll be brief. So the first is just as a matter of general, as a first principle of constitutional law, um, elected officials are not allowed to delegate governing power to any private group. 
It's called the non-delegation clause. And the Supreme Court cases that say, the, you know, the power of governing is a public trust, no part of which can be granted away. You know, you couldn't. And so uh, there's also a provision, there's a lot of Supreme Court precedent on the ability of Congress to limit the executive power. You know, so we have three branches of government in the U.S. Constitution, the legislative, the executive, and the, and the judicial. And um, Congress, a lot of, I mean, the, the court has a lot of decisions on how much Congress can limit executive power. And one of those, one of those principles is they can never remove the, quote, exclusive and illimitable power of removal that the president has over inferior officers. So, so the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978, which mandates collective bargaining and all these elaborate procedures for employee discipline, clearly removes that power. And it's just clearly unconstitutional, in my view. So, you know, I, I really don't even think that's close. So that's probably the easiest argument, but it only applies to federal government. But this non-delegation doctrine, giving governing power to other um to, to, to private groups is also specifically mandated in the Constitution in Article 4 in something called guarantee. So guarantee to everything. That means, according to James Madison, who talked about it extensively during the constitutional debates, is that the states can have their own forms of democracy, but but whoever they give power to has to be account the voters give power to has to continue to be accountable to the voters for for the governing decisions. So that means you couldn't give the power governing powers, Madison talked about, to any nobles or to quote any favored class. So the argument in the book is that Giving these controls to the to the public employee unions is is giving power to the governing class. We can't hold anyone accountable. We can't manage the transit system efficiently, et cetera. All the gov all the things that an executive officer is supposed to do for the voters, he no longer he or she has, no longer has the power to do. There is a not a large leap, but a small constitutional leap required because the guarantee clause has never been. Uh, it's only been come up to Supreme Court maybe three or four times, and it's never be, it's always been held to be non-justiciable because the issues in those cases involve political questions like which of two state constitutions was more Republican than Supreme Court held. Well, that's something for the voters of the legislators to decide, not for the court. But but this case, the case I'm making against public unions, is not a partisan issue. It's a question of who has authority to manage the school system? <laughs> you know, that's a that's a constitutional framework issue, not a not an issue of you know which which law do you like better? And and the the core precept of the of the guarantee clause is you can't give that away. You can't give it away to a private group, and, and that's what they've done. So so that's um, that's a main argument. And then the the final argument, which is one where there's not any precedent really supporting me, but I think it's important nonetheless, is that public employees owe a duty, a fiduciary duty of loyalty to serve the public. 
and they shouldn't be allowed to organize politically to harm the public. They can have whatever personal views they want, but they can't amass millions of people and and get all that money together and then use it politically to effectively bribe public officials to harm the public. Okay, but wouldn't there be a free speech issue um, in in saying to those employees that you can't, you know, either, you know, fraternize with whoever you wish or uh, at the same time raise money and and put it towards causes that you feel are are important, you know, that every other interest group can? Uh, No, that's not a free speech issue. That's been decided numerous times by the Supreme Court. There have been the Hatch Act prevents political activity by by government employees and other laws you know, limit, limit political activity. So, um, that's been, that's been raised and decided that the government has an interest in preventing the, uh, actually the, the active political activity of one person in the government, not to mention the organized activity of millions. Okay, so finally, I wanted to finish off by asking if there was something that you found especially surprising or, or say, the most surprising in, in researching or, or writing this book. You know, um, I was really, um, uh, I was really surprised at because uh, I've I've studied in a kind of microeconomic way, you know, why why thick rule books and detailed procedures and such cause failure. Um, I was really surprised at, at at how how completely the public unions had kind of warped the operating machinery of government. I don't think I really fully appreciate it. Like most people, I think I thought it was inefficient, but maybe it's just a little inefficient. And government doesn't have the market, so it's never going to be as efficient as private enterprise anyway. Anyway, so I didn't realize really what a scandal that this is. I mean, this is. This is like, in a sense, almost worse than Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, because because the practices are really designed for failure. They're designed to they're designed to burn taxpayer money. They're designed to for abusive pensions. It's it, it's really they're designed for feather bedding. It's um, and and what they've done to public schools, the inability to fix public schools. I mean, there's a charter school in Harlem that uh, uh, run by uh, Success Academy that was ranked 37th in the state of New York in academic achievement. Uh, The students are all picked by lottery. The public school that shares the same building, roughly the same cohort of students, was ranked 1694th in the state of New York out of 2,400 elementary schools. That's that's the kind of the range that you're talking about between unmanageability and manageability, between huge success and abysmal failure. And those are human lives we're talking about. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tragedy. Yeah, I think there's there's some very very potent points there, and and especially that constitutional argument is is one to take seriously. Uh, in any case, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Philip. And thanks for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.